Introducing The Vet Detective, brought to you by PSI Vet, a quick and candid series for veterinary professionals where we uncover the underlying challenges that limit your business's potential. Featuring your host, PSI Vet's Kimberly Schaefer. Hello and welcome to today's episode of The Vet Detective. Um, today we have a special guest, Julie Antonellis, and she is an LVT with a specialty in emergency medicine. Um, she's recover certified. She is also a business owner of Antonellis Veterinary Consulting. She's a training facilitator at a VCA hospital in Northern Virginia, um, animal emergency and critical care. And she's an adjunct instructor for the Northern Community, Northern Community College Veterinary Technology Program. And I'm really honored to have her on today to be discussing a calm code. Um, so Julie, welcome. Thanks for um, having me. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. So I um, have been a veterinary technician um, licensed since 1998. Um, I graduated from uh, Quinnipiac College uh, with a bachelor's degree in veterinary technology and um, started working right out of school at Tufts University in their ICU. Um, I was kind of surrounded by a lot of inspiring people. At that time, there were a lot of the sort of legends of emergency critical care working there, and I had some really fantastic um, veterinary technicians um, who were willing to mentor me, and I was very, very fortunate um, to have landed there at that time. Um, after working there for a bit of time, I moved to Connecticut. My husband's job kind of moved us down uh, the east coast of the United States, so moved to Connecticut um, and worked at um, Veterinary Referral Emergency Center um, in uh, Norwalk, Norwalk, Connecticut, um, and then moved to Virginia. I've been here since 2002. Um, I got my VTS in emergency critical care in 2001, so this is my 20th um, anniversary of that, mm -hmm. um, which makes you feel a little bit old, but also <laughs> kind of. <laughs> um, so I do uh, mentor through, so I'm a, a for the uh, veterinary technician specialty in emergency critical care, I am on the um, the committee, the credential committee, and I'm also um, a mentor for them as well. So I've got a couple of folks that are going through the process of uh, studying and applications and stuff this year. So I'm um, always trying to help those that are kind of working towards that BTS because it is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. I mean, even when I was in um, in school to get my license, um, I work, you know, you and I work together at the emergency hospital and uh, absolute wonderful mentor to me as well. I learned so much from you. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> so what made you passionate about emergency medicine? Um, I think for me it was, I, when I was in school, I really wasn't sure where I wanted to go. And the school that I went to was actually very geared towards lab animal medicine. And so I thought for sure that's where I was going to end up. Um, and we did, had to do an internship at Yale in their uh, research labs. And I found that it wasn't exactly what I was really looking for. And so it was kind of between that and maybe going into general practice. But we did an internship at um, Central Animal Hospital in New Haven. <clears throat> and it was an emergency hospital. And I just fell in love. Um, just seeing kind of what they were doing, I, it was um, very inspiring to me. 
Um, and I think that's one of the great things about doing internships um, when you're in school is that you kind of get to see um, kind of the what the world is like with no pressure on yourself. And so I saw that I really loved that. And then I got my dream job at Tufts. And I mean, it it's not hard to fall in love with um, doing it when you are surrounded by people who are so passionate about it. And I think that that's kind of what drove me to it and kept me in it as long as I have. I mean, I've been in emergency critical care for um, about 23 years now. And I, I just, I can't see myself really doing anything else. I mean, obviously I have side things that I do, but I'll always have a hand in it because it's just, um, it, it is my passion. I mean, I just, there's nothing more rewarding, I think, than, um, kind of working your rear end off all day on an animal that is, you know, hanging on by a thread and really seeing, you know, at the end of the day that your efforts have, have helped them or made them more comfortable or, you know, at least you've had some positive impact on their life. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just remember when, when we worked together, um, one of the things that I thought was the most important thing that I learned from you is just remaining calm under pressure. And, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, when you're working in an emergency hospital, it's a little bit, you know, the, the technicians are, are and, and the doctors are more used to seeing urgent cares, patients coming in, but in a general practice uh, setting, you don't always see those, you, you don't get emergencies in as frequently, and sometimes the staff isn't quite as prepared um, or feel as confident in handling those situations. And so I think, you know, having you be able to discuss with us a little bit about how, how to how to be prepared ahead of time, number one, and number two, how to remain calm when those things are happening so that you don't feel like the world is on your shoulders. You don't feel like one misstep and you're going to lose this patient. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you got to that place and, and how you can recommend other people in the same, you know, in a general practice situation can work towards that. Sure. So, I mean, I think that it is uh, very common for technicians to feel, have periods of time where they're overwhelmed. And that doesn't matter. I mean, you could be working at a general practice. You could be working in the most, um, you know, busy emergency critical care hospital. But you're, there's always going to be days where you feel like you are just really treading water. And it's very hard to get ahead. And I, I still have those days myself. I think that it's very important especially when folks are kind of starting out, it, it can be difficult because it took me a, a while to realize that I wasn't, it, it's not all on my shoulders. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's a, you are mm -hmm. on a team. And I right. think that you really have to sort of think of it like that. And by kind of changing that mindset and thinking, well, I'm going to do this task and then I'm going to move on to the next task. And Kim over here is going to be responsible for these things. And, you know, that sort of thing. You need to know that you're on a team. And so being able to lean on each other and know that, yeah, there might be like a million things that need to be done. But when you've got two, three, five people working with you, that load is shared between all of you. And so knowing that you have this team and that you can lean on them, I think is really important. I think that's probably the first step in it. Um, and so being able to trust your team is a, is a big thing, right? You need to be able to um, have faith that they're going to hold up their end of things. And also they're going to pick up the slack if you get, you know, knee deep in something that's taking a long time. 
Um, so I think being a team player is very important. I think being able to trust your team, but knowing, but also putting yourself in a position where they can trust you, right? It, it goes both ways. Um, so always being that hard worker, always being willing to kind of, you know, take things on and, and not, not make it be a big deal. You know what I mean? I think that, um, making sure that people understand that they can come to you, that they can, you know, communicate with you and, you know, even if things are kind of lousy that you're not going to bite their head off. You're not going to like make them feel bad about needing an extra hand or, you know, they can't hit, you know, can't hit a vein. And so they need someone else to do it. It's, you know, it's not a big deal. You just do it and you move on. I think um, kind of having that team mindset is, I think, probably the first and maybe one of the most important things when you're talking about managing stress in a hospital and on a shift and working with others, because, um, you know, I think I tell my students, like, I think that a lot of times people get into veterinary medicine and they feel like they're doing that because they don't want to work with people. And that's quite the opposite of what ends up happening. You, you have to be able to work with people. And sometimes you're working with a lot of very strong personalities because I think that it just is, we're inherently drawn to this type of work. Um, and so you need to be able to communicate with people very well. Um, so I think that you, you have to have sort of those people skills. Um, and I think that's really kind of the first step. Um, I think second, I would say is understanding that it's all going to get done. You know what I mean? It's at the end of the day, it's all going to get done. (laughs) It's like, it, like it's, it may take you a long time to get there, but you will absolutely get there. You know, it's at some point the, the craziness will end. Yeah. You know, um, and so I think if you can just kind of put it into perspective and know that that's going to happen, like your shift will ultimately end and you will end up going home and you might be exhausted and you might cry in your car on the way home, but you will <laughs> be done with your shift and you will go home. You know what I mean? So um, there's no sense, I don't think, in sort of spinning your wheels and getting sort of like crazed about it because it's just to me, it's that's energy that could be better put towards actually doing the work. Um, So I think that, you know, I think when people kind of get themselves stuck in the, you know, this person called out or, oh my gosh, there's, you know, three procedures that need to happen and what are we going to do? And, you know, they spend maybe like five or 10 minutes fretting about all of these things going on when you could actually have, you know, taken a chart and started calculating out medications that need to be drawn up and, you know what I mean, moving towards actually solving the problem rather than um, freaking out about what's going on. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's easy to get overwhelmed um, when you're thinking about all the other things that you need to do, but you're right. And I think it's testament for someone who's been in emergency medicine exclusively for 23 years to be able to say, like, at the end of the day, you go home. Yeah. Um, at some point it might be three hours late, but yeah, you'll go, you'll go home. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> so I think that's great. Um, so when you're, when we're talking about having a team really kind of be prepared, it's different when, when you're trained in emergency medicine and that's, that's what you do. But when you're, when you don't do that and you're presented with an emergency, or if you're busy taking care of critical ca- cases and just can't even imagine that spreading your your time for something that's coming in that's critical talk to me about how you can really practice with the with the team and train them to be prepared 
So I think um, case scenarios are really helpful. Um, I think being able to even say, hey, look, let's think about if we have these three things come in the door. One is having difficulty breathing, one is bleeding profusely, one has a fractured leg, and one is having seizures. Uh, I guess that's four things. But if we had these four things come in the door at the same time, how would we prioritize these particular patients? And then having a discussion about it, right? I mean, I think I don't think there's anything wrong with, I mean, when you have those moments of downtime, they don't always happen these days with COVID and everything else. I think everyone is spread pretty darn thin at the moment, but they still do happen. And so having those opportunities to be able to have a discussion about, you know, scenarios that might end up happening. Um, how would we handle this? You know, I think that those are very helpful things to have. I think if you're working in general practice and an emergency comes in the door, I think part of the reason that people are so... Um, you know, nervous about things like that happening is it's, it doesn't feel natural for them, right? There's no f like natural flow of how an animal comes in on emergency and then we intake them. We, you know, communicate with the client first off when they first come in to our door or when we go out to the parking lot to retrieve the animal from the car, which is how it's done these days for the most part how we have that communication and then what happens next right when we bring them into the hospital we communicate with our CSRs at the front desk and then we bring them to treatment and then we have to communicate that to the doctors so I think that a lot of it is kind of this just even the stress of the logistics about how we're going to make this happen for um, the pet and for the client so I think having you know clear an under, understanding about how the your hospital wants that to work is very helpful because if you don't have to think about all of that stuff if that stuff has already been determined if that stuff is something that you don't necessarily have to think through then that's one less thing for you to get stressed out about you know what I mean so yeah. um, having that kind of predetermined like if this happens we're going to do xyz and then when you're dealing with the animal, I mean, we go through the ABCs, right? ABCs and pain control. We want to make sure that the animal is breathing okay. We want to make sure that they, uh, you know, their heart is beating appropriately. We're going to get oxygen for them if they need to have it. Um, and we also want to take care of any pain that they might be having. So I think that, you know, taking care of the things that are going to kill the animal first um, is pretty much where you need to start with any emergency that comes in the door. Like what is going to be the thing that is going to, you know, make this animal decompensate quickest um, and address that. Um, yeah. And then the other stuff can get kind of sorted out. You know, you get to a point where, you know, some things might be more important than others. But, you know, the reality is, is, you know, it's all kind of equal. And so it's just a matter of picking and choosing what, what you can and can't do. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a, a tricky question. Um, but those, you know, all of you guys that are listening um, may have had experience with. Talk to me about how you handle those uncomfortable situations where you have either a technician who's just very, very uncomfortable or, or not confident enough to help step in during a, an emergency situation, or you have a doctor, likewise, a doctor who's not comfortable, um, hasn't seen that type of emergency, maybe is a new doctor and, and is starting out. Do you have any suggestions or that that can help in those situations? Yeah, I think that is when you need to, if you are a seasoned technician out there and you're working with folks that are 
that are like that, then you need to encourage. You need to bring them in. You need to have them do it. Um, when when I was, um, you know, in, in mentoring, in training and things like that, if I know that someone has a weakness in something, I'm going to make them do it all the time. So if you tell me that you have a hard time placing catheters in cats, you're probably going to place all the catheters in all of the cats. Because <laughs> um, I just feel like that is the best way to sort of train people and teach people. And, um, you know, you got to sometimes give people a nudge. I'm not saying give them a push or a shove or what have you, but give them a nudge out of their comfort zone. Um, working with um, a lot of different doctors throughout the years, I could say that I've worked with many doctors who are not comfortable with emergencies and who are very nervous. And I think as a technician who has seen things, you want to encourage them, right? You want to say, hey, did you maybe want to check this? Hey, did you think about this? And it's not in a way that makes them feel like you're questioning them or you're um, don't have confidence in what they're doing you're just saying hey maybe I've seen this for a while did you maybe want to try this or hey did you notice this and then it turns into it's their idea but you kind of planted that seed they can do it or they cannot do it um, but it it shows them that you're willing to help them that you're willing to sort of be on the same page as them be a member of their team and that you want them to succeed um, I think that just, you know, not making them feel bad about the fact that you don't know how to do this or you've never heard this. I can't believe that. You know, that's not helpful for anybody. Yeah. Well, and I can I can attest for all you listeners that um, when I was learning in as, as a wee young technician, that Julie would make me sit and go over blood gases and sit at the table and review blood gases and question, what does this mean? What does this mean? And I still have those notes. I don't know that I could really tell you how, how to <laughs> apply them at this point in my career, but I have those notes. And, um, and yeah, I mean, we, we would just sit there and do it. Um, we would sit there and do um, CRI, continuous rate infusion calculations. Um, when, when there was time available to, to just play with examples. And, and I will say that that was incredible because it's really hard to learn in the setting when it needs to be done. And it's, it's hard when you haven't done it yourself, even if you learned it in school. So having those, those times to, to go over those examples or have case studies, you know, is, is really, really, really helpful. Um, so tell me about Recover. What What is Recover for those that, that aren't aware? Sure. So Recover stands for uh, Reassessment Campaign on Veterinary Resuscitation. And so basically um, this all started in about in 2010 um, where some emergency critical care specialists um, basically got together and they looked at the evidence for CPR. Um, so up until this point, um, and on the human side of things, there were standards for how CPR was done. You could get certified in CPR and all this kind of stuff, but there really wasn't anything like that for animals. And so they kind of looked at all of this, and it was sort of a two-year looking at the evidence. And then in 2012, they published uh, basically the first standardized guidelines for CPR in veterinary medicine. And... Um, it was sort of world-changing in emergency critical care and in veterinary medicine in general because 
if you can learn the recover standards for CPR, no matter what hospital you go to, if they follow those same standards, you can run a code seamlessly because right. it's all the same. You know, they looked at the evidence and they said, this is the amount of compressions per second we need to do, or compressions per minute we need to do. This is the amount of breaths per minute we need to do. This is how much epinephrine we need to give. This is when we need to give epinephrine. And so it is very standardized in how we respond to CPR in patients. And I can honestly say that since these guidelines have come out and since they've really had traction and people have been using them, we've seen far and beyond more successful codes um, being run. Um, and it's also, they run more smoothly. It turns into essentially a sort of a dance that you're doing. Um, CPR is one of my favorite topics to talk about because it's like for me it's one of the most pure forms of teamwork that there ever could be in emergency critical care medicine or in veterinary medicine in general because no matter what you have going on no matter what happened you know two hours before if you have an animal that codes that dies on your shift everybody drops what they're doing to focus the effort on this pet and to try to get it back I mean it's there's something kind of poetic about that I think I, I don't know it's kind of probably a weird thing to say but I I don't know I just feel like it's like it really is pure teamwork that has to happen you know um, in order to try to get these animals back and so I think that recover really was um, it really pushed the envelope and it really made it so that um, we brought veterinary medicine up to the next level when we're talking about CPR and we're talking about running codes on animals and um, it's evolved since then to where now you can get actually certified in these recover standards um, and um, you could even get trained to be an instructor you know I think that there it's just fantastic the it's really sort of opened up I think a lot of um, things for CPR in veterinary medicine and um, they're you know it's it's kind of one of those things where it's, it, I mean it makes sense right before it came out you might have gone to one hospital and they were giving this much epinephrine or you go to another hospital they're giving this much epinephrine it's like well why are you giving that I don't know that's just what we've always done which I think is a lot of what ends up being said in in um, practice in veterinary medicine but the push you know with this I think really started kind of pushing that evidence-based medicine which is I think we're where we are in um, in veterinary medicine now, more looking right. at why and 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 does it make sense? You know, um, not just taking it just because that's what it's been done for twenty years. Right. It's we're sort of, you know, we we're trying to establish standards of care within practices in general, and this is the next level of standards of care with you know, CPR, and that's. Um, so t tell me whether that dance is still um, to the music of Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. <laughs> well, yes, that is absolutely <laughs> one of them. There's also that ridiculous song, Baby Shark. You could do it to that. You could do it to Another One Bites the Dust. You can do it to the um, Star Wars theme song, The March. Um, oh. There are a lot of, lot of different songs that you could use um, that are all at that sort of 110 beats per minute. 
Awesome. Yeah. Um, so if a practice was interested in getting their team trained on recover, how would they do that? So you can go to um, recoverinitiative.org um, and you can actually sign up to be um, certified. So you basically take an online course um, and the course is really great. Um, I think that it does a great job of really explaining the why behind um, what we're doing in emergency med or in CPR um, and so it, it is a fantastic course if you have I, I believe there are even discounts if you've got like larger groups of people that are signing up so it's a fantastic thing plus it's also a great marketing for your practice I mean if you have everyone in your staff um, CPR certified that's pretty awesome to be able to tell your clients and I think it builds a lot of um confidence in the in the education and sort of the quality of medicine that is being practiced in your class and your um, practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I would imagine there's probably some cost associated um, with it, but obviously worth worth the investment. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what are some good things for practices to have as toolkits in the event of emergencies? So um, I kind of thought about this question and it, I think that it, to me, like a t it kind of toolkit, I think is like one of those things, like, do we look at it for sort of the literal like toolkit or do we look at it sort of as like, what do we want to have in our back pocket to be able to use? I think if we're looking at it in sort of the theoretical sense, then I think we need to make sure that we have good communication and teamwork um, in our practices. That needs to be something that is in our sort of theoretical toolkit that we're using every day. If we're talking about sort of the literal sense, then you know, we want to kind of look and see what we're going to need in sort of a crashing situation, right? Do we have oxygen readily available? Do we have the means to provide oxygen to those patients? Um, do we have our emergency medications like epinephrine, atropine, you know, Lasix, all these things that we might need in a pinch in an emergency? Um, pain medicines. And if we're using pain medicines in our practice and we're using things like benzodiazepines in our practice, do we have reversal agents in our practice that we're then going to be able to to reverse things. I've been to many practices through my consulting and, I, and talking with them about, you know, emergency medicines and stuff like that. And it is very surprising to me um, that how many practices don't have reversal agents uh, available to them. So if you have an animal that has died or is crashing and they've been given a medicine that can be reversed, we want to be able to do that. Um, and then sort of the standard things like endotracheal tubes, ambu bags, catheters, you know, things like that. Um, and even if you don't necessarily have them in like a one contained box or setting, to make sure that everyone knows where they are in your practice and also what they're called. Because I think that there is a lot of shorthand that is used in veterinary practices and that's totally fine. But our folks like CSRs or sometimes even our assistants don't know the language that we're speaking, right? They don't might not know the shorthand that we're using for something like that, like a trach tube. Do they know what that means? Do they know what it is that you're looking for and so if you're if you're asking them to get you something and you're using shorthand that is used in your practice and they don't know what that is they're not going to be able to help you and you might become frustrated with them so being sure that everybody um, in the hospital knows what these things are called um, yeah. I think is is a very helpful thing 
That's a, that's a great point. And sometimes we don't even think about that. Um, I've seen some practices have like um, little, little carts or, um, you know, like a, a tool cart or a, a, a basket that they can grab really quickly that has a handful of things, or they may even have um, pre-pulled tape in the event of an IV, you know, that's needed. Um, are those things that you think are, are helpful or good? Um, I think they're helpful. I think things like pre-pulled tape, you got to be careful because a lot of times that stuff hangs around and it collects dust and bacteria and things like that. And then if you're putting that onto a catheter, then that's maybe not a good idea. Do you know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. I think having the roll of tape, sure, but I think you have to be very careful because if you're creating a cart or a box and you're not using or rotating that stock, it can go out of date. And so mm -hmm. making sure that you're checking that those things are in date, you know, syringes, catheters, these things go out of date after, at a certain point. So if you, if you are going to have it, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it and we have it in our practice as well, but you need to make sure that you're rotating that stock so that things are in date. Um, and that what you have in there is stuff that you're really gonna, gonna be using. Right. And, and getting the, the rest of the team involved, if you have assistants or CSRs that are maybe involved in checking those things, that helps them get a little bit more familiar with those items Absolutely. that are potentially needed. Um, awesome. Well, I these are all really awesome things for us to, to be aware of. And um, it's such a great refresher. I know I see it come up in, in conversation where people just are looking for ways to get their team trained in CPR um, or just be comfortable in those situations. So I really appreciate all your feedback. Um, I wanna thank you again for taking the time out today um, to be our guest on this episode of The Vet Detective. And I will put some information in the show notes that will um, let our listeners know a little bit more about Recover um, and some of the things that we discussed should they have further interest. Thank you so much for having me. And I will say that, Kim, you are one of the most fun people to work with. <laughs> oh, thanks. You just really are a light. And I, uh, I've i always enjoyed that. And so I'm, I, I think that this platform is fantastic. And I'm just really happy for your success. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And um, I think that... Like you said, um, in, in my history, I've, I've been able to be surrounded by really inspiring people as well. And it just, you know, it, it's hard, it's hard to not get wrapped up in, you know, burnout and things like this in this profession, but there is still so many things left to learn and perfect on that really the door is just wide open. So Absolutely. I, I really appreciate all your information and um, thank you listeners. We'll talk to you next episode. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of The Vet Detective. Like what you heard? Be sure to subscribe and tune in next time as we unfold our next veterinary mystery.